life. Got it. Great. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the, it's the last Wednesday of the month. Well, it's the fourth Wednesday of the month. doesn't matter if it's the last, because the fourth <laughs> Wednesday of the month, we are graced with the presence of Dr. Chala and Dr. Chala. They are also known as the Lifestyle Docs, and they are doing a presentation each month on one of the pillars of lifestyle medicine and health, really. And today is the third pillar, which is stress management, which is really important, especially in this day and age. Please welcome them to the show. Good to see you again. Great topic. Thank you so much, Chef AJ. It's our pleasure and honor to be here. Well, so this presentation, actually, our mindfulness expert, uh, Dr. M, is going to do by himself, and then I'll still be available for Q&A at the end. That sounds great. Okay, well, go ahead and get started. And I'm going to share my slides. And let's go to slideshow. Okay, can you guys see that all right? Perfect. Okay, so as uh, Chef AJ mentioned, today we're going to talk about stress management. This is something I think all of us need. And it seems like each year we need more of it. So I'm glad there's lots of science, lots of tools that can support us. But before we go there, I wanna just kind of quickly review the objectives and things we're gonna to cover today. We'll look at some definitions. So I want us to be sort of clear and we're on the same page when I'm talking about stress and stress management and different terms that may come up. We'll kind of focus on some of the adverse effects stress can have on our physical health, emotional health. Then we'll look at the neuroscience, you know, how is stress mediated in our body and brain? And then we'll look at tools that can help us manage our stress. And as Dr. B mentioned, I've been doing mindfulness meditation with our Lifestyle Dogs community for almost four years now. So uh, we'll look at mindfulness, but we'll also look at other stress management tools. Okay. So one definition of stress is response or reaction of body and brain to external demands. So if we're able to cope with the demands, then we can you know, optimally respond to whatever the situation, whatever comes up. But if we, are, we feel like or we perceive that we're not able to cope with it, then that's the type of stress I'm talking about. That's what we're gonna be focusing on this presentation today. Oftentimes you'll see these, these terms come up, motivating versus debilitating stress. So motivating stress is if you've got an exam tomorrow, that's gonna to motivate you to study. So that's where stress can be helpful. So whereas if you feel like whatever is happening, it's out of your control, you feel overwhelmed, the debilitating stress, that's what I'll be focusing mostly on during this lecture. I also want to differentiate between psychological versus physical stress. So if you go to the gym and you're you know, picking up a, uh, a dumbbell and you're doing curls, let's say, so that is a stress to our biceps muscle. But that's not the stress we're going to be focusing on today. We're going to focus strictly on psychological stress. Okay, there's a lot of research which shows that 
there are acute life events which can really overwhelm us, you know, death in the family, a divorce, but even chronic stressors, if you have an unpleasant boss or not so good work situation, and that chronic everyday stress can add up over time. Uh, just driving in Houston traffic is stressful enough. And what I wanna kind of mention is stress is how the body responds. And this is done largely by our autonomic nervous system. So a large part of the stress response is actually out of our conscious control, which is why it's helpful to kind of develop tools on whatever part we can control that we kind of get better adept at using those tools. And this is, you know, from research, it shows that folks, whether it's acute life events or accumulation of chronic stressors over time, these things take a toll on us. They increase our risk for emotional dis uh, disorders, anxiety, depression, but not just that, but also our physical health. There's increased risk for heart disease, autoimmune diseases, even neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. Another thing I wanna mention, this is something that is sort of a landmark study. And we kind of had some inclination of this. There were some earlier studies but this is a fairly comprehensive study which shows that our adult health and well-being has a lot to do with how our childhood was. If we suffered stress or especially trauma during childhood, it's going to have adverse effects on us as an adult. And you know, we're talking about abuse, neglect, dysfunctional uh, household, the greater the degree of dysfunction or abuse, especially sexual or physical abuse, the greater the harm, even as an adult. So we know that folks that have had adverse childhood experiences, they have increased risk for heart disease, for high blood pressure, even obesity, for anxiety, depression, greater incidence of drug and alcoholic addiction, greater incidence of promiscuity and other unhealthy and unsafe behaviors. They can all correlate a lot of these things to a adverse childhood event or adverse childhood experiences. So uh, physicians, you know, primary care physicians, uh, they can sc uh, screen for stress similarly as they can screen for anxiety or depression. There's a scale, uh, it's called the Perceived Stress Scale by Sheldon Cohen. And this is something uh, Dr. B uses and a lot of other physicians use to just to kind of gauge the stress of their patients. So I wanna kind of touch on more specifically the adverse effects of stress. And this uh, diagram or figure on the right just shows us it affects nearly every bodily system. And I'm gonna go over a little bit more detail on how it affects our brain, our immune system, our gut health, reproductive system, and emotional well-being. So let's take a look at those and we'll look at them individually. So as I was mentioning, a large part of stress neurobiology or the stress response is really out of our conscious control. So there are two main systems in our body and brain which mediate the stress response. And one is called the sympathetic adrenal med medullary system. 
So this is a signal from the brain goes to the adrenal gland and it goes to a specific part of the adrenal gland called the medulla. And this part produces norepinephrine. And this helps kind of, this is when you get that feeling of your heart racing, sweaty palms. A lot of that is related to this part of the autonomic nervous system getting activated. And this is a very fast response. This is, you know, oftentimes folks have heard of fight, flight, freeze. This is the fight versus flight response. We may not even consciously register the threat, but we can just recognize it really quickly, our subconscious uh, parts in the brain, and they really set this into motion very quickly, very, very fast response. This is usually more in the setting of an acute thing, but it can also occur in chronic responses also. The other one, is the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So this again is mediated by our adrenal gland, but a different part of the adrenal gland. This part of the adrenal gland is responsible for producing cortisol. And this is the part, this is a slower response, it's a hormonal response, and this is the part that's more important in chronic stress. You know, oftentimes folks will talk about their cortisol being elevated because of chronic stress. This is the system that's going to kind of mediate that response. And so just to kind of show you how this works. So when we get activation of the really fast response, the SAM, or the slower hormonal response, the HPA systems, and usually they're working in tandem. The SAM system comes online very quickly, and then HPA follows. And what these do in combination, they increase our cortisol, they increase epinephrine or adrenaline, and they also increase other peptides in the brain that are gonna raise our blood pressure, raise our blood sugar. So we know that our you know, human body is very intelligent. If her blood sugar is increased for whatever reason, whether you eat something or because of these peptides or these hormones, then the body's gonna keep the glucose in a very safe range. And how it keeps the glucose in a very safe range, the main hormone involved with that is insulin. So if there is increased glucose or blood sugar, then the body has to increase the insulin. Just this chronic uh, exposure to increased glucose because of increased cortisol, because of increased stress, the body has to constantly increase the insulin. Just this fact alone can eventually lead to insulin resistance. And what we know about insulin resistance is it's gonna make us this is sort of a precursor before you get type 2 diabetes. This is a necessary condition before folks develop type 2 diabetes. And insulin resistance also places a, a higher risk for obesity and being overweight. And also these peptides, these hormones, they're going to raise her heart rate and blood pressure. And if this happens on a regular basis, on a chronic basis, it can raise our risk for heart disease, high blood pressure, and other cardiovascular disorders. So just to kind of, you know, really see there are profound changes to our body physiology just from our body's stress response. 
Okay, next, let's look at the immune system. There are numerous studies now showing that folks who are suffering from chronic stress, especially, they get increase in low-grade chronic inflammation. We can actually measure these markers in our blood. This is C-reactive protein, probably being the most common marker, but there are other markers that are increased, folks who are feel like they are under stress all the time or chronically stressed. And if this continues for a longer time, then we get immune dysregulation. Now the immune system is working, it's hyperactive some of the time and not as active as other times. It's really dysregulated. It's not able to meet the demands of the body. And this was really one of the things that we learned during the COVID crisis. I know we're not completely out of it, but when we were really in the midst of it, that one of the things that led to higher uh, rates of hospitalization and death was the cytokine storm. I don't know if folks remember that in the news that this would come up that people who are obese, this was usually in that context, but just from chronic stress can cause immune dysregulation and in, uh, offset the cytokine balance. And it really gives us a difficult time dealing with infections. So there's more risk for infections. We're not able to fight them off as well. There's also increased risk for chronic diseases when our immune system is not working well. And another part of the immune system, its job is to take out cancer cells. All of us at all times are producing cancer cells in our body. But this is usually not an issue because our immune system is constantly monitoring. If it notices a cell that's not healthy, that may be precancerous or potentially forming can additional cancer cells, it just removes it. But now with chronic stress, if the immune system is not able to do its job, you can see that it's gonna increase our risk for cancers. Okay, digestive systems. So uh, one of the things that chronic stress can do is can damage the mucus lining. So as you uh, may remember that, you know, inside of the gut lumen, this is really part of the body, we're exposed to the outside world. And from the lumen, there is just one cell layer, the epithelial cell, which separates us from being inside and being exposed to everything outside. And on top of the epithelial cell as a protective membrane is this mucus lining. So it's protecting us from toxins, from bacteria, other things that we don't want the body to be exposed to. So if that mucus lining is damaged, our epithelial cell, the cells that are lining the gut, they can be damaged more easily. Another thing it does, it reduces the diversity of the microbiota. So these are the bacteria, the virus, the fungi. And as you may remember from our talk on nutrition, that the microbiome or the bacteria in our gut are intimately involved with our health and well-being. They decide what our set point for cholesterol, for blood glucose, for obesity. So if we reduce the diversity of the microbiota, diversity of the bacteria in our colon and other uh, gut, this is going to lead to a less healthy guts, uh, less healthy ecosystem. This damage to the gut epithelium can then make us vulnerable for inflammatory bowel diseases and other autoimmune diseases. 
And especially there are studies now coming out when there is reduction in the diversity of the microbiota, this can also help us help put us into increased risk for obesity. So profound consequences of you know, chronic stress. So the reproductive system, this is something that is not getting maybe as much uh, press time, but we have seen declining levels of testosterone, especially in the last 100 years. Men have lower testosterone now than they did 100 years ago. There's also diminished sperm production. And the thought is that at least part of this is related to the chronic stress that all of us are facing in our busy go, 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 you know, type of lifestyle. In women, there's hormone imbalances. Uh, usually there's a very harmonious balance between estrogen, progesterone, DHEA, sulfate, and other hormones. But with chronic stress, sometimes these, this uh, balance is disturbed and there's more estrogen and less progesterone. There's disruption of menstrual cycles. There's uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So all of these things are, can be intimately affected by our stress hormones. So the net result is, you know, for men and women, there is increased incidence of infertility. So as I mentioned, this is you know, something that I think everyone already knows and when there is prolonged triggering of the stress response or the stress response is chronically triggered, we just feel a sense of overwhelm. We feel like we can't focus on anything, our attention span suffers. And this places us, it's not just inconvenient, it increases our risk for anxiety and depression. And when we have that feeling of overwhelm, when we don't feel like we're in control or we can manage our day-to-day -day life, it's very hard to adhere to a healthy diet and lifestyle. So, you know, we can listen to all these wonderful podcasts and we can, you know, come here. But if we're not feeling well, if we're in that anxious state or overwhelmed state, it's really hard to stick to a healthy diet and lifestyle. So for that reason also, it's really important to have good tools to manage our stress. So the good news is, even though a lot of the stress response is sort of automatic, it's managed by our autonomic nervous system, but there are higher brain centers which can influence the autonomic nervous system, make it less trigger happy. So there's things that we can do. And some of the things I've listed here are breathing exercises, yoga, being out in nature. Some of the newer techniques like heart math, EFT or tapping. And also uh, Chef AJ reminded me having a pet. That is a wonderful way to manage our stress. And also mindfulness meditation. So I'm gonna focus on mindfulness meditation first because this is kind of something I have a special interest in. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the mindfulness meditation part. So what is mindfulness meditation? In a nutshell, it's a technique that allows us to stay in the present moment. And even if somebody has just kind of paid attention or even tried to meditate even for a couple of minutes, they will notice that our mind doesn't like to stay in the present moment. So this, I love this quote from uh, Kung Fu Panda. This is Master Ugwe talking to Poe. 
And he says, yesterday's history, tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. And that is why it's called the present. So being in the present moment is really a gift for us. And this is how one of the ways that we can really learn to manage our stress. So then the question is, you know, what is so special about being in the present moment? And if you just kind of notice your thought patterns, oftentimes we're thinking about the past and we may be thinking of something pleasant and then we kind of get nostalgic and wish that pleasant moment was here in the present. Or we're thinking about the past, about something that didn't go well or something that was sad. And that sort of rumination can again increase our anxiety, depression. And when we're thinking about the future, oftentimes we're worried about the future. We think that something may go wrong and that can also increase our anxiety. So being in the present moment gets us out of the cycle of, you know, kind of going from past to future, which all of us very habitually do. So being in the present moment at least gets us out of that cycle. And then there's one more trick. So being present is not enough. The first step in mindfulness is to be present in the present moment. Then the next part is to be accepting, to be non-judgmental, to be curious, and not trying to push whatever is happening in the present moment away. So this is just, you know, this is how human beings are wired. If we like something, we want more of it. If we don't like something, if something is painful, we want to push it away. But in mindfulness, the, uh, what we're encouraged to do is be with whatever is going on in the present moment. If we can be with it non-judgmentally, then there is every possibility that we can have a skillful response to the situation as opposed to habitually reacting like we usually do. Let's say our spouse says something and our habitual response is to say something you know, right back at them. But if you can just be present just for a moment, just be in that non-judgmental space, maybe you can have a more skillful response. And what uh, neuroscience shows us that if we practice mindfulness and some of the other tools that I talked about, there's actual changes in the brain. Our wiring in the brain changes, the actual structure of the brain changes. And this change in wiring, this change in structure of the brain is called neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity, at one time we thought that you know, after about age 10 or 11, that the brain is pretty much set, that however we're gonna react with our environment, react with other people or interact with other people, it's pretty much set. But in the last 50 to 60 years, we are learning that the brain is malleable, that we can change the brain at any age, doesn't matter how old you are. And the other sort of fascinating thing is that the brain is always changing. But with mindfulness, we are directing that change. Okay, this is going to be the little bit of technical part of the presentation. So we're going to uh, keep it as low. I'm not going to go over everything on this slide, but I think this will be helpful when I go over a few of the studies on mindfulness. So in the front here, so this is a section of the brain you're cutting in sort of in the sagittal uh, format here. 
So up front here is going to be the frontal lobe. On top is going to be the parietal lobe. On the side is temporal lobe. And on the back is occipital lobe. So on this uh, figure here, here's the front. So that's the frontal lobe. Top is parietal. And on the back is occipital. These structures right here, the insula, amygdala, and hippocampus, they're actually in the temporal lobe. So let's talk about the prefrontal cortex first, because this is going to be really important in how we manage our stress response. So this is the part of the brain that sets goals, formulates plans, and that's its one job. Its other job is to modulate the stress response. It is also responsible for shaping our emotions and also guiding and inhibiting our limbic system. So limbic system is what's responsible for our emotional regulation. And our stress response and emotional regulation kind of go hand in hand. Okay, the other two structures in the brain that I want you to be familiar with are the hippocampus and amygdala. The hippocampus is that part of the brain which is really important in learning a new skill. This is where we form and store memories. So, and again, this is part of the emotional system, part of the stress response system. Perhaps the most important component of the stress response system is the amygdala. You can think of this as the alarm bell of the brain. And this is very intimately related with the autonomic nervous system, which mediates the stress response in our body. So the job of the amygdala is to constantly look for threats. That's all its job is 24 seven looking for threats. So you can see if it's looking for threat all the time, it's gonna have an important role in, the, in stress and anxiety. The last structure I want to introduce to you is the insula. So this is located in the brain between the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. And this is important for physiological self-awareness. This is, you know, we're aware of our body being cold or hot, but it also generates a subjective feeling when we feel at ease, have some joy, sadness, or anxiety. This large part of this feeling is mediated by the insula. It has a lot of uh, different tasks. It's also helpful in maintaining attention, important in empathy, managing negative emotions, and also involved in the stress response. So now that I've kind of showed you all these different sort of the background on what parts of the brain are affected by mindfulness meditation, I'm going to share a couple of studies. So this was when I first started uh, kind of looking into this topic about four, four and a half years ago. This is the, one of the first studies that I came across. And this is a study done at Harvard. And they said, MRI study shows that meditation can rebuild or change the brain in as little time as eight weeks. So these uh, particular study had 16 participants and they practiced for almost 30 minutes daily. And they did it regularly every day for eight weeks. They did an MRI examination before they started their training and did an MRI after they completed their training. And what they noticed was that there was increased density in the hippocampus and decreased neuronal density in the amygdala. In this particular study, they didn't see any change in the insula. 
instead of you know giving you 10 other studies, I'm sharing a meta-analysis with you. So meta-analysis is a type of uh, research paper which looks at many, many other studies. And it looks at the commonalities between these studies and sort of condensed in one research paper. So lots of mindfulness studies have shown that with mindfulness practice, there is changes in the function, in the wiring of the brain, actual neuronal growth structure of the brain. There's increased density in the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus and the insula, and there's decreased neuronal density in the amygdala, okay? I mean, all that is well and good, but what does that really mean? So let's kind of dive into, you know, how does mindfulness practice affect these structures and what does that mean for us? So when there is decreased neuronal density in the amygdala, it means that the amygdala is not so trigger happy. It's not gonna go off as frequently. It's not in a state of alarm or fear. And if the amygdala is down-regulated, that means the autonomic nervous system is going to come online less often. There's gonna be decreased activation of the autonomic nervous system, both the SAM axis and the HPA axis. So if the SAM axis, which produces adrenaline and the HPA axis, which produces cortisol, if they are less activated, it means we have less stress hormones going through our bloodstream, which has the effect of less anxiety, less fears. Lots of times people have you know, sleeping difficulties and that can resolve other uh, chronic pain, physical ailments. All of those are reduced if we can decrease the neuronal density of the amygdala, if we can get the amygdala to not fire as frequently. So if we can get increased activation of the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, and the insula, remember all these structures are interacting with each other. So with mindful med meditation, you get decreased activity in the amygdala, and you get increased activation of these structures. And this basically lets us, you know, especially the prefrontal cortex, it puts us at ease. It makes us a little bit healthier, increases our attention span, gives us greater feeling of well-being. And this also interacting with the limbic system, interacting with the amygdala is going to decrease the activation of the autonomic nervous system. Again, which means it's gonna decrease adrenaline production, cortisol production, other stress hormones, decrease inflammation in the body. And you can see how all these systems working together they're gonna decrease our risk for anxiety, for depression, improve our sleep, decrease our risk for heart disease, for diabetes, other chronic diseases, even chronic pain. So I like to share this slide. I came across this recently. And sometimes, you know, me just talking doesn't quite get to what mindfulness is. I think this is a really good cartoon which shows us what mindfulness is. So mindfulness is being present in the present moment and being open and curious and accepting. So you can see there's uh, a man and his dog. They're both seeing the same scene, 
but the man is out in nature. He doesn't see the bushes. He doesn't see the beautiful sun. All he sees is his due dates. He has to do this. He has to take care of that. He's got so much on his mind that he's not seeing any of the present moment. So when your mind is full, it's full of other things, other to-do lists, anxieties, worries. But when you're mindful, you are in the present moment. And you can just kind of see how when you're in the mindful state, that's going to be when you're less overwhelmed, less uh, worry prone or anxious. Okay. These days, it's really easy to practice mindfulness. There's so many apps available. We can readily uh, download them on our cell phones. Some of the common ones are Calm and Headspace. There's a training program. Also, it's an app. It's called Healthy Minds. And this is from the University of Wisconsin, Dr. Richard Davidson's group. And they have made this available free for anyone. So if anyone is really interested in kind of diving into mindfulness, learning the neuroscience, and have some practice that can kind of guide you slowly, this is a wonderful place to start. And if you already have some practice, or if you want to learn, these other apps are quite good too. And as I mentioned previously, I do mindfulness meditation for the Lifestyle Docs community on the first Saturday and third Saturday at 9 a.m. And the link to join us is available on our website and anybody from anywhere can join us. Okay, let's look at some of the other stress management techniques. And next we'll look at breathing exercises. So as I mentioned, a lot of the stress response is mediated by the autonomic nervous system. If we can find a way to uh, access this part of our uh, neurobiology, we can affect the stress response. So. Every time you breathe in, you increase the sympathetic tone in the body. So the sympathetic nervous system, I probably should have defined earlier in the presentation, but the sympathetic nervous system is that our get up and go, get things done part of the nervous system. Whereas the parasympathetic system is the rest and digest and kind of putting us at ease, that part of the autonomic nervous system. So when you're breathing in, you're slightly increasing the sympathetic tone. And when you're breathing out, you're increasing the parasympathetic tone. And this is when there is good modulation of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic arms of the autonomic nervous system, there's good heart rate variability. I'm not going to go into that very much today. But heart rate variability is a really good marker for physiological health and emotional health. A lot of the research papers will talk about heart rate variability. But as I mentioned, with breathing exercises, you can modulate the tone of the autonomic nervous system. You can make it more trigger happy. You can increase the sympathetic part of the nervous system, or you can increase the parasympathetic part of the nervous system which is going to decrease its being triggered so quickly and to a larger extent. So with breathing exercises, such as deep belly breathing or consciously taking a longer exhalation in relation to inhalation, we can de decrease our stress, anxiety. There's also wonderful research showing that this decreases uh, depression 
And all of these things, you know, they've been research verified. They look at blood cortisol levels, salivary cortisol levels, and actually salivary cortisol level may even be more reliable. And they have shown folks who practice breathing exercises on a regular basis, they can look at these folks at baseline and after they do the breathing exercises, they can note decrease in their salivary cortisol. So decrease in the stress hormones. Also have noted decrease in blood pressure and heart rate in blood sugar and blood glucose. All from just, you know, slowing down and taking a few deep breaths. Okay, the other thing that can access the autonomic nervous system is yoga and Tai Chi and some of the, uh, and Qigong. So I'm not as familiar with those other uh, modalities, but for yoga, and even in the yoga, they're not quite sure how it modulates the autonomic nervous system. There's thought that maybe by breathing, bringing attention to the breath, that's how we're accessing the autonomic nervous system maybe by bringing focus towards our body as opposed to the external environment and by bringing attention to the physical sensations to our internal state and combination of breathing, this is how yoga can help us feel more calm, more relaxed and not so overwhelmed. But we do know that by practicing yoga on a regular basis, it's gonna increase our parasympathetic tone. It's gonna downregulate that part of the autonomic nervous system, which is going to get us triggered. And there's wonderful research showing that it affects our genes. So genes that promote health and well-being, they're upregulated and genes that increase our risk for anxiety and other chronic diseases, they're downregulated. There's increased production of neurotransmitters. There's decrease in production of cortisol and adrenaline. And you can see how all of these things together decrease in cortisol, adrenaline, uh, stress hormones, other peptides. All of these are going to decrease our risk for stress, anxiety, and depression. This is one of the newer techniques that I uh, became familiar with. And this is called heart math. And this technique shows us that there is always bi-directional communication between the heart and the brain. That electrical, activ electrical activity doesn't just flow from the brain to the heart, there's actually activity from the heart which is influencing the brain. And the I mentioned the term heart rate variability, and these techniques also work to enhance our heart rate variability. And that is related to our sympathetic and parasympathetic tone. So there are heart-centered breathing techniques you can do. You can do uh, activate a positive feeling. Let me show you what that looks like. So this is the, you know, these days you can do everything on a smartphone. They hook you up and initially, let's say for whatever reason, you're frustrated. So this is what your heart rate rhythm looks like. And as you do these exercises, maybe do a gratitude practice, you can slowly see your uh, waveform of the heart from the electrodes that, that are on you, that they're slowly going towards this. And once people kind of get a feedback, they can notice this change in the electrical activity of the heart. 
they are going to do more of this. So this is based on same thing as feed, you know, like we do feedback for cardiac patients. They notice that if they are sort of a little bit calmer and do breathing exercises, their heart rate drops. So this is going a step further. We're looking at the heart rate variability. And they notice when they have these positive emotions, do a gratitude practice, their waveform is smooth. So this just gives the person feedback to continue cultivating those positive emotions. Okay, another technique uh, that I've become recently acquainted with is called emotional freedom technique. And uh, you may have heard of it by just tapping. So this works and you're, as this photo shows, you're tapping in different parts of your head and upper body. You start at the top of the head, then on the brow, and then you know on the cheek, and you can kind of see the different trigger points. And the thought is, this is not as well studied on how exactly this is working, but the thought is by tapping these specific points, this is similar in a way to acupressure, acupuncture, and that you're able to clear blockages. While you're tapping, you're actually verbalizing a phrase. You can say something like this, even though I'm frustrated right now, I accept that I'm frustrated or whatever the emotion might be. So you're tapping and you're also verbalizing a phrase at the time. And even though the exact mechanism or all of the neurobiology of this technique is not fully worked out, what they have noticed that folks who do this, their salivary cortisol and other inflammatory markers are reduced. So this has been used a lot in combat veterans who suffer from PTSD and they've shown really good results. So, but you know, anybody can use it and it's effective and there's more and more research coming out that it's effective in reducing stress, anxiety, and as I mentioned, PTSD. So another thing that is really helpful is just being in nature just going to your local park, maybe if it's a little bit isolated or going deep in the woods, especially, we don't have to do anything. Just being in this environment increases our parasympathetic tone. It decreases our stress hormones, just makes us feel more at ease. We just feel home in this environment. And this has positive effects that the genes that are uh, going to increase our well-being, those genes are upregulated, and genes that detract from our physical health and mental health through epigenetics, they're downregulated. So all of the things we sometimes talk about in terms of any depression mechanisms, they are modulating our neurotransmitters. Uh, so being in nature decreases production of MAO. So this is the enzyme in the brain which degrades serotonin, dopamine, some of the neurotransmitters. And this is what you know, some of the uh, antidepressants like uh, Paxil and Zoloft, they are trying to uh, keep these neurotransmitters from being degraded. So just being in nature is like a natural antidepressant. And further, being in nature also decreases our cortisol, our adrenaline. And this is something I don't think I need to convince very many folks. Just being out in nature just makes us feel more relaxed, just makes us feel less stressful, less anxiety and depression. You know, all of those things, just being out in nature, really not doing anything. You don't even have to walk. You can just be in nature. Okay. 
So I'm hoping that I've given you some uh, ideas on how stress is mediated in our body and that we live in stressful times and that we need all need these tools to be able to manage our stress more effectively. And also by managing our stress more skillfully, we can improve our physical health, our emotional health. And when we are in a state where you better physical well-being, we're going to be more likely to eat healthier, more likely to exercise. So it's going to improve our physical health, allow us to be at our ideal body weight. Also, it's going to strengthen our neurobiology, where things might have gotten us triggered earlier. Let's say somebody cuts you off in traffic, but if you use these stress management tools on a regular basis, it's gonna improve our resilience. We're not gonna be so easily triggered. And when the trigger does happen, it doesn't happen to the same degree. And as I mentioned before, really useful and you know, better adherence to healthy diet and lifestyle, and which is really what we're all trying to do as a community, which you know, Chef AJ is fostering this wonderful community that everyone eats healthy and practices other healthy lifestyle habits. So that's the uh, presentation. I'm happy to take questions. I'm not sure what time it is. Uh, it's 9.46. Okay. We have so, a couple of questions that were actually submitted in advance. Okay, so I'm gonna invite Dr. B back so she can help me out with the Q&A. Thank you. That, you know, my favorite slide was the one of the guy walking the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think this really beautiful slide just kind of captures, okay, I want more of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so funny. Okay, so uh, thank you guys for sending questions in advance when we have doctors on the show. So this is from Julie, and she says, in terms of helping to manage stress and anxiety, what is more helpful, more vigorous exercise or that of a lower intensity? I realize any exercise is good, but I'm just curious in terms of stress relief, which may be more advantageous? So I am not sure that a lot of research has been done comparing, you know, sort of high intensity training to maybe lower intensity training. So I would say whatever aerobic exercise you enjoy doing, whatever you're going to be able to stick with, whatever, you know, make that part of it. So it doesn't matter which one you do. I will make a comment that uh, aerobic exercise is going to be a little bit better than strength training for stress management. So for the, the tools that I recommend for stress management are aerobic exercise, yoga, tai chi, qigong, these type of things. And, but within that, choose what you enjoy. Yeah, yeah and I would agree. Uh, this is just more from my experience with myself and also my patients. Um, what we have noticed is in terms of reducing anxiety, yoga is very beneficial. In terms of lifting your mood, it's actually the aerobic exercises. So whether it's dancing or running, really getting that heart rate up for an extended period of time gets those endorphins flowing. Um, so yeah, lifting mood, I would say aerobic and reducing anxiety, I would say something like yoga. I love yoga and I don't do the hot, sweaty kind. I do mm -hmm. something called yin restorative, which is basically like napping, but yeah. with a little bit of stretching. And I'm telling you, it's like, I just go so, I just love it. And they do like sound healing and they play these bowls. It's my favorite thing in the whole world. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and the word is really, you know, spot on. It's restorative, really restores you. Oh, I love it. I can't say enough for it. I mean, I do the aerobics to help with the anxiety, but but for stress relief and just, it just calms the nervous system, you know, it's just incredible. And I do something called Reiki. I don't know if you heard of that. I do it. Every yeah, day. yeah. It's just anything. It's almost like anesthesia in a way, but it not in a way like Michael Jackson way, but like just in right, a, right. a healthy way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, so um, you actually had talked about uh, traumatic uh, childhood trauma. And so this question from Carol says, I've been following a whole food plant-based diet for about 10 years ago. And three years ago, due to some traumatic events, I started having hair loss in several places on my scalp, uh, around patches. Some of it has grown back, but most has not. I've been to the dermatologist and tried several things. None have worked. What recommendations would you have to help with this problem? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the techniques I talked about in the presentation, this is, I, maybe I should repeat this part. So stress, the sort of the debilitating stress, stress that's causing the body some physical or emotional harm, that's the stress that we're trying to address. And, you know, we can have the trauma at one time period, but if the body hasn't gone back to its equilibrium, then that trauma continues in our body. And all these different techniques that we talked about, whether it's aerobic exercise or yoga or meditation or being out in nature, all of these are trying to get you out of that past traumatic moment and get you return, return you to equilibrium. So that's ultimately what's going to allow the body to heal from an emotional standpoint and also from a physiological standpoint. So all of these techniques will be really helpful. But you know, someone who's suffered trauma, you know, sometimes depending on the level of insult, you may want to work with a therapist mm -hmm. also. So this is, you know, oftentimes, you know, you do these techniques, but you also work with a counselor. So you can kind of unpack what may be going on, but the idea is to return the body back to its sort of equilibrium state. So, you know, all these techniques will help. Have you heard of like specific uh, trauma related types of techniques? Like I think one's called EMDR, brain spotting. They have different mm -hmm. ones. Is there a, are there ones you recommend and how do people find a competent therapist that, you know, you don't, you don't want to just necessarily go to the internet, right? Right, right. So all of these techniques are relatively new. I'm a little bit familiar with EMDR. And even in a city as large as Houston, there's really just a few practitioners. So this is something to ask your uh, psychologist about. So they will be kind of in touch with these more specialized type of modalities, and they can guide you. Yeah, don't just Google EMDR and if there's somebody in this area just really maybe a friend who's been and they have a good experience and asking your psychologist would be a good way to go. Great, thank you. Uh, Susanna, who's watching live asks, which of the mindfulness practices that you recommend today would you suggest for someone who has never done any of this before? So that's a great question. Like if somebody has just never done anything, where okay. do you start? Yeah, I usually start off folks with just breathing exercises. And this is something that's accessible to us, you know, all the time, and it's fairly easy to get the hang of it. And uh, unless there is a lot of other questions, Chef AJ, maybe I can just give her a couple of quick breathing exercises 
and we can do a short practice. Nice. That'd be great. Okay. So this is, you know, part of doing anything is kind of being present in the present moment. So this is, but I, you know, when I'm kind of starting the meditation part, I always do breathing exercises first, and we can just do the breathing exercises alone, and they're going to be very effective. So I usually lower my gaze or close my eyes. So wherever you are, whether you're sitting in a chair, sitting on the yoga mat, just notice the connection between your feet or your seat to the ground. Just notice how the ground supports you. If possible, you can kind of lift your torso a little bit, have your uh, torso be relatively straight, not stiff like military, but sort of dignified and upright. And first we're gonna do just a couple of different breathing exercises. The first one I'm gonna show you is called four, six breathing. So we're gonna breathe in for a count of four and breathe out for a count of six. So remember when we're breathing in, our sympathetic nervous system is getting activated. When we're breathing out, our parasympathetic nervous system is getting activated. So we're purposely, consciously increasing the parasympathetic tone in the body. Okay, so you can look down, you can close your eyes, just take a moment to check in with yourself. If it feels good, you can roll your shoulders up towards the ceiling towards the back of the room and really settle in. And we'll kind of do some breathing together. So breathing in, two, three, four. Breathing out, two, three, four, five, six. Breathing in, two, three, four. Breathing out, two, three, four, five, six. Last time in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six. You can let your breath sort of return to your normal pace. I'm gonna very quickly show you one other breathing exercises exercise. For this, I want you to place your hand on your belly. And as you breathe in, see if you can gently nudge the belly out. As you're breathing in, you're like blowing up a balloon and gently nudging the belly out. And as you're breathing out, you gently guide your abdominal wall towards the spine. Okay, let's do a few together. Slow breath in. Nudging your belly out, just kind of how feel the belly pushes against your head. And whenever you're ready, you can let the breath out and guiding your belly towards the spine. Another slow breath in, blow up that balloon. And very slowly, very deliberately, let the air out. Last time in. And slowly release the air, emptying the lungs completely. Okay, just by doing that for a few minutes, taking just a few conscious breaths, 
and either doing the four, six breathing or the deep belly breaths, you can really access your autonomic nervous system. You can reduce that sense of overwhelm or, or anxiety. And this can also be like a good precursor if you're going to do some mindfulness meditation. But, you know, just breathing mindfully, you're already doing a mindfulness practice. So this is where I start off most folks who've never done anything. So, okay, everybody can learn how to, you know, breathe consciously. That's great. Thank you. Question about meditation. I just saw it. Where did it go? From Julie, what do you recommend for meditation and at what frequency? So I'm going to let Dr. B answer that one. Okay. So the frequency would be to try to do it every day. Um, For me, I like to do it in the morning before I leave the house. That way it gets done. Uh, And then if I get a chance, I'll do it again in the evening before bedtime. Um, so it's kind of become, you know, a habit in terms of got to brush your teeth before you leave and you got to meditate before you leave. Um, in terms of what we recommend, it's really whatever works for you. The, the one we're most familiar with is mindfulness meditation, which is you start off observing your breath or um, observing your sensations. Um, what exposed us to it is something called Vipassana which is a silent retreat that you go to to learn mindfulness meditation. Dr. M has been seven times. Um, oh my God, but don't you like not talk for like 10 yeah, days? 10 days, silent yeah. retreat. Oh, I can't talk. I can't not talk for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's worthwhile. But some of the other th- techniques or the things that I mentioned during the presentation It's really easy to learn mindfulness meditation these days. There are so many apps Mm -hmm. and all of them have like two weeks, four weeks free time period. Mm -hmm. So you can try. And some of them are like free forever, like Inside Timer and Healthy Healthy Minds. So they have, you know, free. So just, you know, uh, those are the ones I would recommend. You can try out Calm. You can try out Headspace. They have some free... uh, uh, mindfulness meditations, but some of them they're like free forever. So I invite you to try out lifestyle dogs. We are also free forever. <laughs> um, so a lot of since we started coming on Chef AJ, we've had a lot of people um, contact us. But unfortunately, we tell them unless you're in Texas, you can't be our patient. However, something like meditation, anybody can join our community. You don't have to live in Texas. You don't have to be our patients. Like he said, the Zoom link is on our website. It's 9 a.m. Central Time every first and third Saturday. He starts out with breathing exercises, then mindfulness meditation, then loving kindness meditation, and then answers questions. So if you have more questions, you can come on there and ask Ben as well. That sounds great. Maybe you could email me a specific link to make it easier. And then I will put that at the top of the show notes of every show that you've done so far, because that would be great. Okay, awesome. Well, and maybe I'll join because nine o'clock central would be seven o'clock where I am. And that's like a perfect time for meditation. Yeah, Yeah, we'd love to have you. Oh my God. Well, thank you. That's great. So what are we going to cover next month? What is the fourth pillar? So the fourth pillar we're going to work on is you want to sleep or I think it's sleep. Let's stick with the order. We'll do sleep. That sounds great. Well, thank you. It's such a pleasure always uh, learning from you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.
Oh, it's so great. Thank you so much. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live because it's my birthday today. There's a bonus show. Oh, that's right. Yes. Happy birthday, Chef AJ. That's you okay. told us last time and we oh, completely that's okay. forgot. Well, thank you. As a present, just subscribe to my channel. That's all I ask. But today at two o'clock, we're going to talk to Dr. Doug Lyle, Dr. Ellen Goldhammer, and we're going to talk about the 10 things, the top 10 things I learned from them from reading their book, The Pleasure Trap. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.